Good afternoon, everybody. My name is uh, Dan Albrick. I am the co-chair for programs, along with Jeanette Outlaw. And um, today's program is being podcast and videocast. So if you do have questions throughout, and we do that, do encourage that, please uh, raise your hand, and we can bring the microphone around and make sure we get all that uh, recorded live. Today's topic is uh, going mobile. So that being said, and talking about working from anywhere, so to speak, uh, remember that the programs are the second Thursday of the month, so you can pull out your Blackberries now and put that in as a reoccurring appointment so we all show up on a monthly basis to our events. Um, next program is scheduled for Thursday, March 12th, and will be Count On It, the dollars and cents of change. Our uh, speaker will be flying in from Dallas, which is much warmer down there, as we've been told on our conference calls with Ed Buckley. He's with uh, Camburn Developments, and he actually himself has gone through some change and is now focusing his efforts on his startup company, a software company called Blue Ambit. So he will be speaking on uh, the ch uh, change management uh, and so forth. Uh, that takes us to today's topic, which is going mobile, help your CFO see the light. For every successful mobility program, there are 10 failures. Today's speaker is Dan Cook, Managing Director and Vice President, Global Real Estate and Support Services. Dan Cook leads the global team of professionals delivering real estate strategies and solutions that meet the needs of companies' business units. Prior to Bearing Point, Mr. Cook was Senior Vice President at Jones Lang LaSalle, where he provided real estate consulting services to global clients in areas of occupancy planning, services, outsourcing, and workplace strategies, including Bearing Point. From 99 to 2005, Mr. Cook was Director of Global Real Estate for Agilent Technologies, an IPO spinoff of Hewlett Packard. From 84 to 99, Mr. Cook had held several real estate roles at Hewlett Packard in the U.S. until moving to Agilent Technologies as part of the IPO. Mr. Cook re re received his Bachelor of Architecture degree from the University of Notre Dame and is a licensed architect and member of the American Institute of Architects. He's also an avid Sox fan and wanted me to tell you that there's 52 days till opening day. <laughs> it gives me uh, great pleasure to introduce and turn it over to Dan Cook. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Dan, thank you. Jeanette, thanks for helping pull this together. Um, RJ reminded me that I did this here back in 2004, so that was quite a while ago. And uh, things have changed. Quite a few things have changed since then. And so we're going to talk a lot about the change and what that means. Can everyone hear me? Is, is this working okay? Okay. Um, I use this quote a lot about change. And, um, you know, we, we see the change happening with, with a lot of things right now. Accelerating change. Obama talks about it in politics. We still see a lot of changes in technology, a lot of changes in the economy, a lot of change in financial markets. And a lot of what I'm going to touch on is how the financial markets have a stranglehold on companies and what we can do as real estate professionals working with the business units to help impact and help the business units benefit from that. So I'm going to jump right into um, a case study, and that's with the current company that I'm with, Bearing Point. I don't know if people are very familiar with, with Bearing Point. Um, they're a technology and management consulting company. Um, they're, they, they have a good business plan. They have very, very good revenues. They're about four and a half to $5 billion company, um, global in nature. But they are more susceptible to the current financial markets and 
what is happening there than many, many companies. They have a very bad balance sheet. And it's been that way for a very long time. Bearing Point was a spin-off of KPMG um, when they had problems between audit and consulting, conflicts of interest. So they split off, I believe it was back in like 2003, the consulting piece of KPMG. And then went on this huge acquisition spree um, internationally, buying consulting companies and accumulating debt. You know, this was very common, and it's, it was common right up until the last few, few months, in fact. And so if you look at our balance sheet, uh, Bearing Point's balance sheet, there's $1 billion of long-term debt. And when you look at that and you see how the credit markets have frozen up, and we have a very lumpy payback on, on uh, our long-term debt, we need to figure out how to smooth that out. And I've gotten involved from a real estate facility standpoint help figure out how we can smooth out those rough patches. So as I mentioned, I was with Jones Lang LaSalle. I have a couple of people here that I worked with on uh, the Bearing Point account as well. And as consultants to Bearing Point, we came in to try to help them do this, help them figure out how to get their costs in line to be sustainable, help improve the bottom line on their balance sheets, um, help cash flow. Cash flow is another big, big issue. Um, with companies that have bad balance sheets. Uh, about a year into that, uh, I became, or I was asked to become the, the uh, global real estate lead um, for Bearing Point. I knew what I was getting myself into. I knew how bad this situation was. Um, but I also saw this is a fascinating company, and there was some fascinating things, especially reporting directly to the CEO. So you have a lot of influence. You get a perspective that a lot of real estate people don't get, and you can make a lot of difference with the recommendations and implementations of your programs. So Bearing Point has a little over 2 million square feet of space worldwide. We manage it globally. Um, it's a little over 16% of the total infrastructure cost, so it's a big cost item. When you look at that, everybody understands and sees that there's, there's something here we should be looking at, taking a hard look at to see how we can improve it. Um, and we support about 17,000, a little over 17,000 employees around the world. Um, what isn't on here, and you'll see in uh, the slides in the, in the future here, is that uh, we have over a million square feet of, of um, shadow space. And these are locations that we have closed down and written down, written down the assets and taken off the books. But you still have to deal with that. And so I'm going to talk about how we work that and how that makes a difference, especially when you're working with your finance team. Um, a little bit about our outsourcing structure at Bearing Point. Um, we use Jones Lang LaSalle for all of our transactions globally. So right down to Bangalore, India, to Chicago, Illinois, they provide all of that. Um, support for us. They do the lease administration, project management, and all of the financial analysis, which is a huge piece of what we do as the real estate team for Bearing Point. Um, Canon provides all of the support services um, resources on a US-wide basis, and we are in the midst of negotiations where they are now going to take ownership of all our facilities management in EMEA and Asia Pacific as well. So I guess my point here is that it's one of the companies that I've seen that I've worked with that really truly is operating globally. Now it's just a matter of whether we can hang on to that cliff and still be a viable entity in the future, 
But uh, as a global operation, I think they really have a, a good, um, credible way that they've set up the organization. So, you know, we, we look at what we call advanced workplace solutions for Bearing Point. Um, this we set up when we first started working with them as a consultant and have expanded it, and it's really expanded to a different program today. I show the occupancy cost reduction piece of AWS because, you know, there are a lot of other pieces, but just with the financial um, markets and the situation today, it's all about occupancy costs. You know, I don't, I don't look at anything else really anymore. It's all about occupancy costs. Um, I like this. Uh, this is a real good likeness of our CFO. This is how he operates. And it really is about the bottom line and what we can make as a contribution to the bottom line of the company. And when you see some of the things that we're dealing with, um, especially in a company like this, and I'll have other case studies, but this is all about knowledge workers. And when it's all about knowledge workers, you have huge influence when you talk about the bottom line, but you also have influence on employee productivity, satisfaction levels, and, and the like. So these are our objectives. Um, and the only one that I highlighted in red, reduce space and close offices. And we use restructuring accruals to set that up and improve the balance sheet and P&L statements. Um, there are also other activities that I'll show that influence and uh, benefit on the free cash flow. And free cash flow is getting very, very important for Bearing Point right now. It's interesting, from, for Bearing Point's perspective, it's truly a virtual company. Um, I work out of Chicago. Um, our CEO, he works between Miami and New York City. Um, our CFO is in Dallas, and our chief operating officer is in Sydney, Australia. So we work as a team, but we very rarely are face-to-face -face in anything we do. We've learned how to work very effectively um, remotely and virtually like that. So um, just to give you a perspective of our real estate objectives, this is the budget. If you look in 2006 when we were JLL consultants and we came in to help them understand their costs and what we can do, um, it was at this point that I approached um, the CEO and said, you know, we could take immediately $16 million of uh, annual cost out of your operating budget by going in and, and closing down offices, moving people to work from home, and then restructuring those, those leases. And so he, he saw, that, saw that as a, you know, I've never heard of anything like this. $16 million off of operating, and that's right to the bottom line. In revenue, that at 10% uh, margins, you know, you're, you're up, up over $160 million in revenue. So this became something that everyone got very interested in. Um, you can see now these are actuals in 2007. Um, I came in at 126 million for an operating budget globally. Uh, 2008, we just closed the books and we actually came in at 90 million, so we came in three million under um, our our uh, budget, and we set up the 85 million, but uh, that's not really going to make it under the current um, economic conditions. So. We've gone in and we've looked at reforecasting for 09, and we're down to 75 million. So in three years, we've literally taken 50% taken of our costs out of our operating budget across the real estate portfolio worldwide. Um, so we have to make some assumptions 
and we have to drive home some points with our employees and with the business units. So we have five business units that make up Bearing Point, and they each act independently, so I need to convince all five business units that we can act as a uniform, cohesive team and when we roll out these different programs in real estate. And one of them is I need to show them and prove to them that their employees are just not coming into the office as much as they have in the past. We don't know really where they are. We can just measure that they're not coming into the office, but they're still being as effective, if not more so, in generating revenue. A lot more of them are working from uh, client sites. You know, they'll spend more time at client sites. A lot more of them are working from home. We just don't, you know, track it that well. And a lot of them are just working at a lot of different places. And so I need to convince the business units that their employees are not coming into the office. We don't need this office space like we used to. That's a really tough thing to do when you're talking about guys that are running business units because they kind of measure how effective they are by how much space they have. But once they see how much they're paying for it, it makes it a little bit easier. So we look at also utilization reports, where are the opportunities, and I pull in the business units to say, here are the, the locations we're going to focus on. Get back with your management teams and, and help us convince them that the right thing for us to do is consolidate, close offices, and work from home. I really have a strong work from home component in uh, the Bearing Point culture right now. Uh, just to give you an idea, we, have, we do a lot of measurements um, uh, with the portfolio. And in the three years that I've been working with Bearing Point, I've seen that the utilization has just dropped off tremendously. But what you have are a lot of facilities that have very high costs. I just pointed out our New York office, which is only really two years old, and that we have a total headcount of 311 people, and that's actually up to about 350 people right now. But we, when we built it, we only put in a little over 200 seats, because we know no one's ever going to be there at the same time. But then we look at the average monthly utilization rates, and we measure utilization by just actual visual check on when people are in their offices or at their workstations. Um, our Cisco phones let us know when employees have logged on, so we use that. And just also the proximity card readers, we can also get some information from that. So with, with the three pieces of information, we can pretty much convince anybody when we are showing something like less than 30% occupancy in a space that we're paying almost $3 million. So we're really talking about we're throwing away $2 million a year, and, and we just don't need to do that. So as we look through this, we create the model and the measures that we take back to the businesses, and then we start our, our consolidations. It also has to work internationally. I think in the US, it's a much easier proposition because a lot of companies are doing this now. Um, a lot are much more mobile. There are mobility programs that everyone has seen. Technology is a little bit further ahead, a little less costly, so it's much easier to do in the US. But we have to drive these programs overseas too. And we actually had our Jones Lang LaSalle folks, consultants, helping us with Germany. And they know how difficult it is to work with different cultures in doing this. But we've gotten them to um, close down uh, three-quarters of their offices consolidate, and they're actually operating um, from work-from-home situations with our employees in Germany as well. The, so this is the, um, this is the Bible. And I have copies, hard copies for anybody that wants them. It's our outline and guidelines for our employees, and it states and stipulates 
how they work. We know how they work um, and what that means, how we're going to set them up in an office environment. So we, we really basically said the office is not going to be like it used to be. We're, we really have a different concept of what office is going to be in the future. And so we came in and in here defined the employees by the type of work that they do and that now mandates what they get as far as technology, equipment, um, what they get as far as office space available to them, etc. So you know we, we have profiles of three different types. Um, the home-based is one that we're really pushing to grow um, as we are now going to close down offices. This has all been a voluntary program. So we've gotten 15% of the population to voluntarily um, close up their offices, move home, and they don't come into the office. Um, we also, and I'll talk a little bit more about the new office of the future for Bearing Point is going to include a partnership program with Regis. And I'll talk a little bit about what that's going to look like. So our work at home folks do have an opportunity if they need to get together. They do it through a network and partnership with um, Regis. Uh, and if anybody has questions as I'm talking, please just raise your hand and, and I'll answer them then and we'll also have a little bit of time for uh, questions at the end. So the next part of this though is we're mandating work from home. So all of the employees that have voluntarily gone to work from home, none of them, none of them have come back. They've, they've, they've all stayed you know, and like the environment. They're all very happy with it. But I think that's going to change as soon as we start mandating that people work from home. We close down offices and they, are, they have no other choice. And we've started to do that now. But when I put up there this sense of urgency, mobility gives rise to this sense of urgency that people are more understanding and aware that in these times we have to change the business model and how we operate. And if we can reduce costs and we can use real estate to do it, I as an employee, I as a member of the Bearing Point culture will go ahead and I'll sign up for it. Very different than it would have been 12 months ago. Um, we wouldn't have gotten the cooperation from the business units or the employees in making this mandatory. And that's the most surprising thing to me right now is how cooperative our employees are in understanding that this really can have a benefit to the company and probably will help so that we won't have to lay off employees. Um, and you know, we have very, very few office-based employees. So you look at the 17,000 employees in the company, only 15% of them have assigned workstations. Everybody else is hoteling or working from home. Uh, we have a pretty vibrant set of technology for our employees and tools that they use that help them to be more mobile. To me, the biggest one, which I hated when I started, was AgileQuest, which is a reservation system that all our employees use. So because 85% of our employees don't have assigned desks, 85% of our employees use AgileQuest to make reservations in space that they're going to work in anytime they come into one of our offices. And to me now, it's the best system going. I love it because it sets up everything. It sets up my phone. It sets up everything that I need. Um, all of our employees have uh, you know, these puppies and uh, laptops. So it, they really are, from, as a technology company, set up very well with the equipment and the technology to do it. The failures I've seen with companies um, primarily are are around technology. They have not provided or supplied the technology that allows 
employees to work in a mobile environment. It's just not there. I um, mean, we're big on telepresence now. Um, we, we spend $480 million a year in travel, and we're going to try to cut that down to $200 million in 09. We're involved in setting up the, the telepresence platform that will allow us to do that more effectively. The, you know, we have a very different environment when people come into the office now because most of them don't have assigned workstations. Um, if, if they do, this is what they come into. It's just an open office environment. Even managing directors, if they're, you know, they used to really feel like they were entitled to a, a, a full height office on the window wall. We don't, we don't do that anymore. It's just not part of the culture of, of uh, Bearing Point. So this is the environment for those that have assigned. Um, we have a lot of mobile type of environments that we set up in the, the offices for just touchdown space. And when people come into the office today from a Bearing Point standpoint, you hear a lot about this with different companies. It's all about collaboration. When you're coming into the office, it's to sit down and get that face time, to work on projects, to work on proposals. So we find that as we measure how these, these spaces, these new spaces are being used, these different project rooms are getting the most utilization of any of the activities and the, the different types of topologies we have in the offices. So we'll see a lot more of the project room setups. And um, this offers us a lot more flexibility, too, um, for the offices. And then just the, the drop-in workstation. So anything that is not on, on our Agile Quest reserve system, um, we have plug-ins, wireless, at any location in the office, they can just sit down and be up and running. And it's interesting, too, because every employee has a hardline landline with voicemail. And I hear it over and over again when I'm in the office, when they're talking to their clients, please just call me on my cell phone because I rarely check my voicemail anymore. And so I can see that you know, within you know, the next 6, 12 months, a lot of that's going to be going away, and the cell phone's going to be all, all that you're going to need from a communication standpoint. At least I can see that at bearing point. Um, we did realize and recognize, and I, I saw this with some of the other clients that I consulted with, that you do need some training for employees that just don't understand how to operate in a virtual environment. And we consulted, one of our clients was um, Sprint Nextel. And they used to call it the sandwich principle for their, their um, employees. And that is that, you know, Sprint Nextel, they sold all of the equipment and everything that you could possibly think of to help employees be more mobile. So they wanted to do that with their own, their own employees. So a big push from the executive team to roll out a mobility program for employees. And on the bottom, they, they have a lot of young employees fresh out of school. What do you, I, I guess they're be millennials or Gen Yers, one of the two. But they're very used to working in a mobile environment, want the flexibility to work at home if they want to, and come in and out when, whenever they, you know, they need to from a business standpoint. So you had those two that were all over the program, but it was the middle managers. It was um, you know, the guys that wanted, had always grown up, wanted to see their employees come in at 8 o'clock and leave at 5, and were really uncomfortable if they you know, looked out and just saw a bunch of empty cubicles. And so this is what we developed. We, we, I'll show you a little bit of what was developed for Sprint Nextel because I think that's kind of the state-of-the-art program. But we did at Bearing Point design different training programs 
made available to all the employees to help them operate more effectively in a virtual environment. This is the one that um, we put together at Sprint. And so this was actually a skills assessment that every employee and manager went through. And it was able to identify um, where their skills could be improved and identify the programs that they should use. Um, Eileen Forbes was involved in doing this at Sprint. I think she's probably still there. She's very, very good at, at developing this stuff. And then measures. We use metrics and measures to make sure that we're meeting our goals. And our ultimate measure for Bearing Point is in terms of revenue. So as long as our revenues keep growing and we can reduce our occupancy budget, we're in good shape. And our goal is to be, always be under 3% occupancy cost per revenue dollar. But this is a sliding scale. And you look at the current conditions in the marketplace today, a lot of people are coming in with forecasts of revenue that are going to be 10% less, 20% less, 50% less in some cases. So you have to use this kind of measure to react and respond to those kind of future predictions. And we need to be flexible enough to be able to take costs out. So we have lots of triggers that the business units already know that if our revenues start, our forecasts start to go down, we can pull those levers, pull those triggers, and get our costs down to match up with those revenues. To me, this is the most important aspect of working with an executive team, is get that measure in place and be able to work with the business units and know that's how, they're, how we're being measured and how they're being measured. Um, so this, I, I wanted to go into a little bit now where we're at with, with Bearing Point. So Bearing Point, as I mentioned, has this horrible spreadsheet. Revenues are great. It's a very viable business model. But with a bad balance sheet and long-term debt coming due very closely with it by April, um, we went out and we hired Greenhill, which is a, a company that helps find private equity. And we did this six months ago just as all the markets started freezing up. We got very close to finding private equity partners, but just everything came crashing down. In fact, the day the markets went down 700 points the first time, um, I was out in New York with our partners, ready to announce the deal, and it just shut down on that Friday. But over the weekend, we worked. We were ready to announce on that following Monday and shut down because the markets went down again. It got that close. Just fascinating stories. Man, I have some great stories with this stuff. So we went and then we, we hired another group um, called Alex Partners. And Alex Partners, what a, what a business to be in right now. They work with companies that have bad balance sheets and they help restructure debt. So we hired them three months ago to go back to our bondholders and figure out how we could restructure the long-term debt that we have on the books. And do that with the threat of, if we can't do that, it's going to be Chapter 11. You know, we've got to go, we got to file for, for protection. So this is what Alex Partners does with us. So as part of their plans in restructuring debt, real estate plays a big part in that. And I see this being a bigger part of a lot of companies as, you know, the, if, if the financial markets continue to have, have this stranglehold, more and more companies are going to find themselves in the same situation. And Alex Partners' business is booming like crazy. So um, we've been working, they've been working with our bondholders. And we've started pulling this together 
I have also started working with all our landlords. And we have some very long-term debts with our landlords. We're able to offer equity positions to our landlords. And we are under financial duress. And so if we cannot come to an agreement under bankruptcy protection, we will come back to you and say, either take this or leave this. It's a very interesting process. Never been, it, been through it before, but it's very interesting. But what it does, it gives us an opportunity to really look at a clean slate of what we truly need as a viable entity. So let's assume, and this is just an assumption, that Bearing Point um, files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. I can have a clean slate of how to set up the real estate to support the business model. And so we've started working and partnering with Regis on these cards, and they have these world, what are they called, world cards? Business world, thank you very much. And um, we're, we're working on a, a plan that our employees will be provided these cards, and it's a pay-as-you-go type of operation. So no capital goes in. We, 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 you know, we don't have the capital. We don't have the cash. So we can use this. It's a very effective way for a virtual company with mobile employees when they need space to find space because they're in a lot of places that we're in. We've kind of mapped out in the major markets where there are um, Regis locations and where our offices are today, it's a beautiful overlay. It's like, why didn't we think of this sooner? But we really haven't had this opportunity. Um, and we may not have this opportunity, but if we do. Then, then we start looking at the uh, Regis locations and how they're set up. And they're actually pretty much set up with what our new office concept looks like. The only difference is we don't have to put up the upfront capital um, and we can pay on as-you-go basis. So for our employees in a virtual environment, they can use the space two days a month, 10 days a month, no days a month, and it's just on a pay-as-you-go basis. And it's also services associated with what you need when you're in an office. So for me, this is kind of fascinating stuff for where I think Bearing Point can end up, and it really reduces our overall cost significantly. When I talked about that $75 million budget for 2009, we're down under a $50 million budget. So we can reduce our, our cost by 50% by just, just, um, in, um, just by doing this. The, the biggest challenges, I think, right now um, are keeping track of the employees. And as we start mandating this stuff and they, they start you know, feeling a little bit detached from the company, um, a changing of the company culture, um, just, you know, the uncertainty of the, the economy and the financial markets. It all plays a little bit into, you know, how effective our employees are working. And so we do a lot to try to keep tabs on how they're feeling about what's happening in the workplace. And so we follow up with a lot of... Um, uh, just phone calls. Um, we, we have uh, different websites that they can log into and provide information that we're looking for that gets sent out to them on a weekly. We have a weekly news media thing that goes out to all employees. So we have a lot of different ways of capturing information from the employees. And then we take a look at what are the priorities, what are the, the, the critical issues, and see what we need to do to address those. To me, that's where a lot of these programs get lost 
and that is that there's not a real robust way of following up on the employees' needs, which are always changing day-to-day, week-to-week. And I think this is probably the most critical thing that we're doing right now with our employees, just because there is so much change and so much uncertainty right now. So just um, some of the critical learnings. Uh, you know, I say executive sponsorship, and it has to be more than that. It has to be almost um, a passion. And you get that passion by presenting your CEO and CFO with ways to save money and improve the bottom line. They get very passionate when they see that stuff. And you have to have that to push it down to the employees. Um, when our CEO and CFO and chief operating officer, when they come into the office, they don't have workstations. Um, they come in and they sign in just like everybody else. Our CEO typically just works out of a conference room. He signs out a conference room instead of a workstation. But when you, when you see that, it makes it very apparent to employees that this is something that they feel strongly about. It's not just that they're sponsors, they're passionate about it. So that's a, bigger, a big piece of this. As I mentioned, the evaluation of local needs and continuing to survey and understand what the employees are feeling and what, what are the issues that are starting to bubble up. Brutally honest communications. I've been involved in programs in the past with other clients where we've recommended programs and the communications um, on what the intention was and what the result was and why we're doing this just didn't happen. And you don't do that if you don't have just real honest front, you know, right in your face communications, you have a strong likelihood that it's not going to be successful. And then the immediate financial benefit. You know, I, I have to show that there's some immediate financial benefit to anything that we do today. And that's going to be the case with everybody. You've got to show it immediately. This is not like a return on investment that's 12 months out, even six months out. You need to see it immediately in that quarter. Um, the integration of IT, HR, and finance. You know, this is stuff that we've, we've known and we've talked about forever and ever. But it is critical. You have to have IT, HR, and finance on your team to make any type of mobility program successful. Um, and then, you know, technology is probably the biggest contributor to this, but our employees are, are working differently. We know this just by looking at the utilization data. Um, how they, the work-life balance is very different. Uh, I do all of my calls in, um, to uh, Asia Pacific at night at home, and I do all my calls to uh, Europe in the morning at home, which is a huge benefit. And you see all kinds of people now operating in that model. And it's just going to be more and more. It, 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 it's inevitable. OK. So we'll go back to this is another case study. And um, it goes back to probably um, one of the first companies that really, truly embraced mobility. Um, Agilent Technologies is a spin-off of Hewlett Packard. Hewlett Packard. Um, I worked for Hewlett Packard for 15 years. Um, I brought this. This is a, this is a great book. Uh, Bill and Dave, were, or Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard, I was fortunate enough to be at HP when they were still running the show. And a guy named Lou Platt came after them and ran the show. I got out of there just as Carly came in, which I'm very glad happened. Um, but. I started reading through this. Obviously, I like it because I recognize all the players in it. But all of the CEOs, Bill, Dave, Lou Platt, in here, they were asked, what, were, what contributions did you make as the leader of this company that you're most proud of? 
And all three of them in the top five said the environments that we provided to our employees. And they were always cutting edge environments. We started working on a mobility program called Next Generation Workplace in uh, 1986 at Hewlett Packard. Um, Tom O'Connor is somebody that was with me then and is still with me now at Bearing Point. So we've carried this through um, HP to Agilent to Jones Lang LaSalle to, to Bearing Point. And I think it's, it's, just, you know, it's just exciting to see that in a CEO's world that something about the importance of employees and how they work and what they provide to them ranks that high on their list. And it says a lot about how the employees viewed the company. Um, at that time when we started introducing mobility programs to HP, HP just had, they never had offices. It was all open office. They just, they actually just, as they moved manufacturing offshore, moved manufacturing to contract manufacturing, they just took those manufacturing floors and converted them into office space. So you just had these big massive floors. And you look out in the middle and there's Bill and Dave sitting out in the middle just, you know, working away, which was, you know, how I knew it to be. I now see how unusual that was back then. Um, and so you can see that they were always kind of the leading edge. That's how they had the HP way, which is really management by walking around, management by objective, first created in the HP environment and then spread out to, to all corporations. Um, so when you see that and their attention to that, we were able to do a lot of interesting things um, at HP. Back, even back when technology was not there, we provided a lot of flexibility to employees about where they worked, working from home, working in the office, um, even flexible work hours, et cetera, at that, that point. And HP, in my mind, continues to be at the leading edge of how and what they do with their employees in providing the work environments. Um, I talked to Renee Leach, um, who runs the Americas real estate for HP, and they're looking at the same program with Regis. So I think you know, there are going to be more and more companies that kind of see this as a different model about how people work and, and what the future is going to look like. So in 1999, um, HP decided to spin off uh, their test and measurement companies, their six companies, and call that Agilent Technologies. So at the time, I was working with HP on what, what that was going to look like, the carve-out strategy. So I was carving out you know, what stays with HP, which goes, what goes with Agilent. HP became, the, the company that they became was printers and computers, which the original HP was started as test and measurement equipment. So it's really Agilent is the old HP. Um, as I was splitting up you know, the carve-out strategy, the service level agreements, all of that, um, I was offered the opportunity to run, I was just doing U.S. real estate for HP, to do global real estate for Agilent. I love the idea of global because I really wanted to do more of that. And so I jumped at that, that option. And so in, in 2000, um, the company uh, went public as an IPO, one of the biggest IPOs ever. I think the biggest on the West Coast. Um, it's a $5.5 billion company. I think there's a little less than 28,000 employees now. And when we went public in 2000, um, there was a lot of volatility. So I feel like it's almost deja vu all over again with Bearing Point. Because when we went public in 2000, our stock went off at, at about $38 on the open market. And immediately went up to $200, I think like $210. And so for us that had founder shares, it was like, wow, this is awesome. <laughs> 
You know, they didn't invest for, for five years, but man, it sure looked good on paper. And then the, the wheels came off. Um, it's starting in, in October. You can see that stock price came way down, not as volatile, but we actually got down to under $20 a share and everybody started to panic. And then we got into um, 02, and this is really when a whole dot-com thing kind of went down. Telecommunications, which were big customers of ours, started um, not ordering anymore. And so our, what we did then, we went into what our CFO called our nuclear winter. So we went through eight quarters of being unprofitable. And coming from an HP environment where we never had a quarter that was not profitable, when you, you know, come from that culture to this, it freaks you out that you're not making money. And so it was at that time that we really had a strong um, directive from the executives to get rid of office space and get people working from home. You know, really expand what we did at HP and bring it to Agilent in a, in a big way. Uh, the most interesting thing is as we set up our performance measures, I came up with this idea that whatever we do and contribute to the bottom line in that period of time, we should look at how that translates into profitability and how much per share are we really contributing to the profitability of the company. And so that was our measure going into um, 04, and we were able to prove that the, the things that we did contributed four cents profit to every share. <coughs> Outstanding. So um, you know, this goes back into just you know, the same thing. Sense of urgency, got to get costs out right away. What can we do? Well, we can send people to work from home. We can set up a different model, consolidate, close offices, put them into restructuring, and improve the, the balance sheet and um, the P&L statement. So you look at the initial steps where we closed 48 offices and consolidated into the remaining offices. Um, we had a large percentage of our employees that were forced to go and work from home. It was not it was not viewed positively, and the people that we sent home were not happy. So we had a lot of, um, a lot of activities that were geared towards responding to people's complaints and figuring out how we really make them work effectively. And it wasn't easy. And we still had, you know, as this was going on, still more pressure to close more offices and reduce our costs. So we came up with some things that in hindsight now, I can see we're very important aspects of any type of mobility program that you got to get right up front. Um, well, I, I guess I can just touch on this very quickly. The program was called Fieldscape. So in, we also set up, so in the offices, um, everybody was hoteling. So anybody that came into the office, this was the type of environment that they came into. Um, it was just touchdown space and they had to sign up for it. Uh, you know, and we used uh, Chicago Design Network is here, and I, I worked with them in HP, Agilent, and Bearing Point, and they really have, on a worldwide basis out of here, um, come up with all of these designs that we've used um, to set up these mobility programs and what we put into the offices. Huge thing. Um, in Agilent, when we introduced this website for mobile employees that really gave them access to anything that they needed, it, it really changed the complexion of the program. People started talking about how easy it was, how effective it was for them to work at home from then on, 
And after this was introduced, we got inundated with requests from employees to sign up for the work at home program. So much so that we couldn't sign them all up as quickly as they wanted to, to work from home. So this is a big, big, big thing that really triggered a positive impact on a mobility program. Um, in, when I was at Agilent, one of the things I also had facilities management as my responsibility globally. And we went out and looked at what we could do to really reduce our costs very quickly. We went out with RFP to facility management groups. Um, Jones Lang being one of them was my first introduction to JLL um, on, from this side. Yeah, but Johnson Controls also and Siemens and a, and a couple of others. But Johnson Controls won the global contract. So we outsourced global facilities management. I mean, this was EMEA, Asia Pacific, everywhere as well. And, and uh, in the terms of what we had, we had a baseline of costs. We really understood our costs very well. And they could look at that and say, okay, we can look at this and we can take 15% um, off the top day one. And so they would charge us back 15% less than what we were paying. And we actually increased that to 20% in the negotiations. So they came in, took over all of our operations, facilities management operations. And part of that was setting up a call center. And so as part of that call center, we started talking to them about, you know, you know you're only really handling our facilities. We have so many employees now that are working at home, working away from the office. We need to help use your call center to help us with these employees as well. So um, working with the, the, the local team um, at, at JCI, we created this call center function that addressed anything that was needed or effectively wanted by our mobile employees. This was another big thing that was viewed very, very positively from the employee base in a mobility program. That not only that you have the website, but you have that person on the phone that behind the scenes can go and, and figure out whatever it is that you need to have figured out. So um, the result there in, um, in uh, Agilent um, was that 95% of the US field workforce is now mobile, which means most of them work out of their homes. When they come into the office, they do not have assigned workstations. 55% um, of the global field is using their home as their primary work location. So if you look at um, you know, some of the, the global situations, I remember Japan with Agilent doing this in Japan was very, very difficult just culturally. Today it's totally accepted. Nordic countries, they were the first to hop on the bandwagon. Um, and uh, Germany, as I said, I'm still having trouble with Bearing Point working with the German folks in uh, working from home. It creates a couple of different interesting things. Like within Agilent, um, when we set this up where they could work from home, we had employees that were working in other countries that were moving to France. Because France had such better um, worker councils rules for retirement. So they were setting themselves up to work in France so that they could get the benefits that were set up by the workers councils. So you have to deal with things you never ever would expect culturally that just pop up. Um, it, in Agilent, we actually had uh, three or four in administrative assistants that worked for executives that were retiring, and they were a group that moved together to a retirement home, and they wanted to continue working, so we set them up in the retirement home with all the equipment so they could continue <laughs> working as uh, admin assistants. 
And I think uh, two of them are still, are still doing that. Um, so the actual cost per employee is 60% less for mobile versus traditional. Um, and you can see this in anything that's printed at Agilent today. You know, they support work anywhere, anytime for their employees. Um, and you can see it's become very much a piece of the culture at, at Agilent. Um, I found it interesting, too. If you look at the probably the last two annual reports at Hewlett-Packard, um, now under Mark Hurd, thank God that Carly is gone. It's become a much better company now with Mark Hurd. And in those annual reports, he kind of highlights what are the key things that he's doing in the future, has done in the past, that will, well, in the future that will contribute to um, better profitability. You know, they show profitability as a growth company, not as a value company. They want to be a growth company at, I don't know how many billions of dollars, $100 billion, something like that. It's $120 billion. And it's really hard to be a growth company. But they can show the profitability of a growth company, and they use their real estate strategy in helping them to achieve that. So they say we're consolidating operations, and that's going to contribute to so much profitability um, in the coming year. So it's kind of interesting that real estate plays an important part in an annual report for a company that large. Um, just a side note about Hewlett Packard. So, you know, they have the open office environment, and Lou Platt was a great CEO too. He was, um, you could always see him down on the shipping receiving dock every day because he was a smoker. And so you couldn't smoke in any of the HP facilities. And this is, you know, back in um, um, probably, you know, early 90s. And so if anybody wanted to talk to the CEO, you'd just go down to the shipping receiving dock, and he'd be willing to talk to anybody. And I've, I've flown on a plane, you know, he flies and he flew um, coach, and I've flown with him before, um, cross country. Um, he ended up being the chief executive for Boeing for a period of time until he had a brain aneurysm and died. So he would fly from California to Chicago quite a bit, and that's where I would um, meet up with Lou. Great, gr he was, you know, HP Way guy, um, followed Bill and, and uh, uh, Dave to a T, and he transitioned to Carly, and he did not like Carly at all. She had, she came in with kind of the rock star CEO mentality, which was so foreign to HP and so foreign to the employees. So in real estate, one of the first things I had to do, and I get a call, is to, um, in the open office, is to close off those offices that Carly's executives have. So we had to put glass all the way up to you know, the ceilings for, uh, for, for Carly's group, which is you know, so, so different than anything that had been at HP. And then we put the, um, the kind of the velvet ropes that you see at, uh, you know, for red carpet type of events. We had to put those out in front because you know, it was in the open office and people could just walk right through it. She didn't want just any employee just walking through. So it really sent a very negative message and she never really recovered from that at all. So um, you know, you know, looking at that, I can see from my perspective, you know, it's all about cost today. It really is. It will be all about cost for, for a long time to come, I think. I don't see really any light at the end of the tunnel right now with. Uh, with the uh, economy or the financial markets. Um, but you can't lose sight of the fact that employees are your company. And you know, what we do with real estate and the environments that we provide for employees are going to have a very
direct impact on productivity. The, you know, there, there are a couple of, uh, one other client that I wanted to bring up. Well, there are two clients that I worked with when I was at Jones Lang LaSalle that um, weren't concerned about the, the financials. You know, it was, you know, everybody really was concerned about the bottom line, but, you know, it used to be the war for talent. I don't think we hear that that much anymore, and, you know, attracting and retaining employees, which is still an important thing. But this was uh, BP Americas I had as a, a, con a consulting assignment for their headquarters down outside of Houston. It's a um, pretty ugly campus, but they really wanted to improve it because they had something like 60% of their engineering population in that campus would be eligible for retirement in the next three years. Huge drain brain, and you know there's going to have to be this knowledge exchange, and they wanted to get very bright um, people out of college into that campus, and they were trying to figure out what they needed to do to do that. And they had a lot of different kinds of ideas and opportunities that they were working through, which I thought was great. And um, I'm not sure where that stands now. I don't know if you guys know, but. I thought it was a really exciting project and was really geared towards getting people down there. They actually had one building, I think it was a 10, 10-story 10 building, and they did nothing but trade gasoline and oil futures. And you had nothing but just guys sitting in an open office environment with three screens in front of them, and they sat there and just traded all day, and they brought meals to them. They said if we could figure out how they go to the bathroom at their desks, we figured that out. So a very different environment that you have to deal with, but it was how they were productive. And they said that generated that one building, and those employees in that building generate, generated $1 billion of profit for the company. The other one was Microsoft. And we went up to Microsoft to work with them on um, their campus and looking at some ideas that they were working on around mobility, which really wasn't a, a big program at that time. This was two years ago, two and a half years ago. And their campus is huge up, up in uh, Redmond. And there was talk about just scraping a lot of these buildings that were built in the 60s and starting with something new and something that would get the type of people that they want. And they're all about collaboration um, and they're all about innovation. So those are the two things that they want to measure. They had a group called the Bungie Group, which is associated with Xbox 360. They designed the games. For Xbox 360, and so you know they do they do a lot of like testing and experimentation, which is great. And they took an old Kmart box building, and they talked to this Bungie group, which is you know these are gamers. There are a lot of young kids that just design games, and they they helped design what went into this you know empty big box, um, and then they moved them in there, and they had a way of measuring their productivity and innovation, and you know obviously through the number of games that come out of the uh, group. And so they saw a huge improvement in, in productivity and innovation in whatever measures they were using there. And I thought that was a great approach. And they were going to take that approach now and put it to the campus. They've actually taken some buildings and set up you know, new environments. And different groups can come in and sign up for those areas and work in those areas and see if it you know, helps them work more effectively, what they think of it. And you could sign up for a week or for a month, make comments about what should change. So I, you know, I, I look at Microsoft as being very much at the forefront of what they're doing and their approach to um, how to set up not just mobility programs, but the environments that, that people work in. 
So, um, you know, the bottom line is, well, I can't, what is this called? American Gothic. And I actually have seen that, that house. That house is in Iowa. It's a little tiny house that actually really is there. <laughs> this was, this was, I got to give credit to, to, where's David? He actually put this together. But it really is true. You know, there are so, so, much, so many different things. How we live, the technology we use, it really is different. And we should be able to work, fit our work into the way um, that we live. So, I open it up. That's what I have for today. I open it up for questions. Um, a lot of stories. <laughs> yes? What were the challenges? I can see high-level consultants easily embracing or, or more easily embracing the move to a, more, a mobile or a homework environment. But what were the challenges you had with the lower-level employees, like your EAs and the associates and the kids out of college to to working at home when they might have six roommates or five kids at home. I mean, what did you do differently for the lower level employees? Yeah, there are always exceptions. But I, I would say, in general, um, talking about, you know, from a stratus perspective, the lower level employees, they were the easiest. They, were, they, they really embraced it more than anybody. Um, but you do have issues, you know, with people that have families that are growing. And, and, and so you have to deal with, you have to have an um, some type of process for exceptions. And so in all, all of these, you know, at Agilent we had a process for exceptions. At Bearing Point we have a process for exceptions. It's not an easy process, but we do. And, you know, tip... Um, yeah, in, in some situations, you know, we track it then too, that they're actually in the office more than 70% of the time they get assigned workstations or they get an assigned office. But um, if, if we don't see that in the utilization data, they get a really nasty letter that, that comes out from my, my group. Um, everybody hates those letters. And um, then we talk with them about, you know, this is not, you're, you're not fulfilling what we expect you to do um, as an employee of the company. Now, you know, there are some, there, there's some leniency there, especially with uh, the lower level employees. Um, because part of this is, and this was the big, this is probably the biggest issue that anybody will deal with when you get the majority of the employees being mobile. And that's how do you orient new employees to the culture of the company or how that they can feel part of a community that's being established. So, I, you know, we're still working on it. I think there are ways that managers are figuring that out and how to get their employees together, not necessarily physically, but, you know, over the phone, telepresence type of activities works very, very well. But you don't, you miss some of that where people learn by just being around other people. And we haven't figured that one out yet. And so there's still, you know, issues around new employees. Do we want them working from home right away? Um, it depends on what their job is, but we do make exceptions for different businesses that really want new employees to be, um, you know, capturing information, learning through just working with other people. I think the Regis solution is going to help a lot, help us a lot, because anytime anybody wants to get together, they have their cards. There's typically some place pretty close to where they live, and they can arrange to just meet at, at those locations. Yeah, I just wanted to make a comment about what you said about property management mm -hmm. and lowering operating costs being a, such such a crucial issue mm -hmm. these days. I think you're absolutely right. I think. Good asset managers, good property managers are going to be really, really vital 
to our industry. And I'm just speaking from the development side, from the outsource side of the equation as an example. As the credit markets start to unfreeze and you start to see deals being underwritten again, I think you're going to see more scrutiny of operating expenses on assets. As an example, an MOB, for a medical office building, for example, right now, that operates 10% below the BOMA average adds about a million dollars in value to the asset, which to me is a very yeah. interesting statistic. Yeah. Owners will certainly put more emphasis on that. Um, and it, you know, I guess it was just the cost of doing business in the past. And now that it's, you, know, you have the measures and you're starting to recognize those costs, and it's not just the owners, it's the tenants. You know, because those costs get passed through to the tenants. And they're going to be scrutinizing them much more um, themselves. And so it's going to be incumbent upon um, any type of ownership in any new development to figure out the best and most economic way to set up property management. I, I, I see that as just a fundamental. <laughs> if and when the credit markets free up, we start developing again. But yeah, it'll be a big part of it. Damla? Hello. Um, we're obviously working with a lot of clients right now that are trying to explain, expand their um, US-based programs across the globe. And what we're finding is that a lot of countries and business unit leaders are not willing to accept programs that were developed by the Americans. Right. Um, so how are you able to engage the people from all the different countries and get them to sort of own the program and accept what really did stem from Bearing Point in the US? Yeah. And Man, well, you know, that's a, that's a key thing. <laughs> because, yeah, especially the Germans, they don't like it coming from the US. Yeah. And uh, so really, the way to do it is, in the way we've, we've been successful now at Bearing Point in doing it, is that we just provide materials to let them develop their own program. Um, and we kind of oversee and support what they're doing. Um, again, it's that passionate support from the leadership. So within Bearing Point, we have one EMEA leader. Um, Peter Mockler, I think you've met before, and it takes you know it takes some time, but uh, we got Peter totally geared up for this because he sees the cost um, implications. Um, you get this sense of urgency because you see the current economic climate, and it becomes much easier to get that support. So you get that support from um, the leadership, and then you also provide then the materials to like my team over in Germany, Arne, who, who you know to develop the program for themselves. So it has some local input into it. Um, it's really not very different than, you know, it's the global guidelines, but they put their little spin on it and they roll out the German guidelines. And so when you have that ownership yourself, um, it's much easier to do. And when you have that sense of urgency, which is great help in that sponsorship from the top, um, you know, it's, that's how it works. I mean, that's what's worked. And it, it, it is, you don't want them to reinvent the whole thing. And you know, that's what it could lead to, but it, it's gotta be kind of subtle, you know? And, and just give them the right materials, measures, you know, that they can start using their own measures. Give them you know, the background of how to, how to do those measures. Put that information together to share with their business units. And then nothing's better than where we're at right now with this, it's almost more like a sense of desperation at bearing point than a sense of urgency at this point. But um, it's much easier. It, it sounded like you downplayed, attract, and retain new employees. I don't want to. Say yeah, that's and I what don't want to do that. But, <laughs> but all I can tell you is that 
right now, it's taken a back seat. But at varying point, it's a huge issue. Um, with a consultant company, they have turnover rates that, you know, and it's all about the employees, um, 20 to 25%, which is, you know, phenomenal. I guess my question was, though, as you, as you do uh, move to a more mobile employee base and as, as the economy gets stronger, well, right now you have people wanting to stay where they are simply because of the economy. Do you think that's a, a, you know, something you're really going to have to deal with further down the road and in a stronger economy? Will you lose your employees because you, you're forcing them into this fit currently and you're not you know, making that a focus of... Yeah. I, I guess that is in the back of my mind. It's a great point because things are going to turn and it's are we prepared to deal with the repercussions once things turn around? And I fully expect Bearing Point will come out the other end a viable entity. And and that's been a huge issue because you know, in a consultant company, it's all about the people. So you want to hold on to those people and make sure that they're there and they're happy with what they're doing and they're productive with their clients. Um, but I guess my experiences with the programs that I've been involved in, you know, once people get working in that environment, they don't, if they had the choice, they would rather just stay and, 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 and work in the more flexible way that they're working. I'm sure some people will come back, especially like managing directors that still have this kind of need for, um, it, it, it's not really a, a physical need, for space, a, a assigned workstation or assigned desk, but it's something that they feel they deserve. And we won't let that happen, I don't think. I think the culture of that, the company will be very different in that respect. And if those people choose to, to leave the company, I think people will be okay with that. I don't know if that answered the question. <laughs> And it's only because I haven't, you know, like Agilent went through it and came out the other end, and I didn't see that, you know, that's really low turnover. I think Agilent was something less than 5% and didn't see that as, you know, an issue um, once it turned around that people, you know, they love the environment. Like I said, we had people volunteering more than we could handle. And I think with, um, I think with most companies that would be the case. You know, you talk about it's easy for Bearing Point because they're knowledge workers, they're more flexible, they know technology. But Agilent, you know, they had manu it was manufacturing and you had a lot of people that didn't really understand technology. I really firmly, truly believe that any company can make a program, mobility program work, and it's something that employees would choose. Um, and the benefit is that it's a lot less costly for, for the company. Um, I want to... Um, I wanted to comment on your, uh, actually commend your transparency on Bearing Point's financial situation. I think that's yeah. something we're telling all of our clients is it, necessary it's, um, these days. You know, it, it's out there. We've you know made it, a, uh, made everybody aware. All the uh, in investors are you know, everything I've said today has been put out there already. Right. Um, my question is actually about your Sprint case study, and I was wondering if you could go into a little bit more detail on your partnership with HR and how maybe you measured the employee productivity before. They were mobile before they were offsite employees, and in as which opposed case to the study? traditional model, the the sprint in particular. But if oh, you have, sprint, yeah, if you have any other ways that you measured the before and after, yeah, that sounds interesting. So that was back when I was with Jones Lang LaSalle as a consultant. So they had a program that was well underway, and so it was we came in, and it's Print Powered Workplace is their program, um, and we came in to help them. They were looking at ways that they might be able to enhance the program. 
um, because of the facts like, you know, you had managers that really didn't um, buy into the program. And so you, you, had, you had people that were in conflict within the management teams at Sprint. Um, HR was a, a, a big piece of that program because I believe at that time, um, Eileen and her team were part of HR. So it was a program that was sponsored and run by HR. Um, so they were very much involved in developing all the training that went around that for the employees. They had all kinds of loops of feedback from employees that were in the program that went back to HR. So um, I couldn't give you any you know, specific examples of what they did that, and, and, and you know, how they reacted to it, but I know that they had a, a very, very good system of, of getting feedback from employees and managers on what they thought of the program and where they needed to make improvements. I mean, really good one. And Eileen would be a great person to talk to. I'm sure she's still doing it. Thank you. Dan, with the, um, with the shift in, uh, in, the, in the markets and the need of real estate to be much more uh, bottom line oriented, where do you see the opportunities for corporate real estate executives um, going forward, at least in the next uh, you know, couple of years, um, in terms well, of job and you know, professionally? Yeah. And you know, I guess my, I'll, I'll just refer back to my biggest point there is to be fully integrated with the finance teams and your CFO. Because for the next few years, corporate real estate will be able to play a major role in, in the decisions that are made, especially around financial decisions. And so from my perspective, from a corporate real estate perspective, um, I'm all about getting information that ties to um, the profit and loss statement of the company, the balance sheet of the company, and the things that I can do to make a difference. And like I say, from my perspective, reporting directly to the CEO, that makes all the difference in the world. Because I can go to any business unit and tell them something <laughs> or ask them something and they will listen and they will, you know, it makes it much easier. So from, from my perspective, in the next couple of years, um, there's a lot of opportunity for corporate real estate executives uh, to work with their executive teams um, to the extent of whatever they can do to help with the bottom line performance of the company. I, I, but I go back to the point that you know, it, it, it's, it'll come back around that the effectiveness of employees, um, productivity of employees, it'll still, it'll, that'll come back as well. And so you, you always have to keep that as part of what's being developed in your kind of the strategies and objectives in corporate real estate. Um, I don't think there's any going back. I, I think the model of the future for what we deal with as corporate real estate folks um, is going to be very different. But Sharon, as I said, I wouldn't want to be holding, be an ownership position of commercial real estate in a CBD in the future, say, three years, five years out, because I think it's going to be a very, very different model that people are going to be dealing with. Um, and as a real estate person, more of what we deal with is going to be how you support an employee and not about the real estate itself. I think that does it. Thank you very much. And appreciate it. Thank you. So I, I take away from that the job security for the CRE is introduce yourself to the CFO before he comes calling. Yes. Right? <laughs> All right. Before I forget, Megan Breyers and Guy Pompiello. Pompiello? 
Would you come on up afterwards? Uh, Cranes would like to speak to you. Oh, it's, uh, it's, a it's a principal, won't you? Next, uh, next month, same time, same place, second Thursday, please join us for change management. And don't forget, February 26th for green leasing, if you'd like to get into that, our learning session up at Allstate. Thank you for joining us. Goodbye. <laughs>